Since I left my childhood home in the great state of New York, I've moved house 33 times. That's a lot, but I'm not special. It's a common story now. People can't afford to stay put because rents go up and wages stay the same. When I moved to Glasgow, I sincerely hoped, beyond both hope and reason, that I'd left my moving days behind me. It's kind of tough feeling like the only home you've got is the travel-sized piece you took with you. My partner and I eventually found a flat in Shawlands, settled in, and made plans the way you would if you fully expected not to move again for the foreseeable future. It was foolish in retrospect. After three and a half years in that flat, the landlord sent us an official notice of rent increase, a 21% rise. We pleaded with him, reasoned with him, implored him, even argued. I can't be expected to stand still while the market moves on, he wrote. The anonymous brains at the first-tier tribunal, tasked with protecting tenants, evidently agreed. Not only did we have to move out, but the landlord also connived to keep our deposit. Because all this happened in the midst of a housing crisis, it looked for a minute there like we might actually have nowhere to go. It wouldn't be the first time in my life. But it's hard to serve couches when you're already hauling one around. Lucky for us, some friends were leaving their flat in Govan Hill, where we've worked and hung out for years, so we took it over. Now, here we are. Maybe 33rd times a charm. The Scotsman ran an article in 2013 with the headline, Govan Hill, Glasgow's Ellis Island. Having come to Govan Hill myself via the hereditary route of New York's Ellis Island, the title struck me as a canny dodge of some pretty tricky conversations about both the U.S. and Scotland. The casual conflation of Ellis Island with Govan Hill as a historically welcome place in Scotland for migrants sounds like so many outdated talking points from the world of almost ten years ago before kids in cages, or one-way flights to Rwanda. Historical amnesiacs often forget, or ignore, that, judging the U.S.'s track record on race and class, we should absolutely be aiming higher. And like the parts of New York most fetishized for their diversity, shout out to Brooklyn, Govan Hill's reputation could go from neglect to Negronis in a dizzyingly short space of time. But since we're talking about a little lifestyle feature in a right-leaning rag, maybe I'm being too critically demanding. The article was, after all, as much about food as it was about migration. Or is it the other way around? Though nestled in the food and drink section, the author conjures the gritty realities of racism, crime, poverty, and the bloody history of populations in transit. He seems to be talking obliquely about something else, whatever it is. Or perhaps he's avoiding that something else altogether, by talking instead about the neighborhood's rich culinary culture. The story of Govan Hill, its people, and its long history of immigration is best told by talking to those who prepare and enjoy its food and drink, the author says, before doing precisely that. And after relating the wide-ranging views of these preparers and enjoyers, the article ends, Govan Hill is great for food, no doubt. It's also a fine place to feed the soul. It's hard to imagine anyone publishing an unreconstructed love letter to an underserved majority-minority neighborhood like this in late 2022. Why? Not because Govan Hill doesn't deserve it, or that people don't actually feel this way about the place, but because as rents and house prices skyrocket, 
so too do the stakes for its residents. The author's romantic cheeriness signals that he enjoyed visiting Govan Hill, which implies that he doesn't live here. This kind of flaneur journalism, praising the exotic beauty of the city's larder from arm's length, reads today like the threat of property developers pricing us out of it. If you're going to write about a place, as I'm currently trying to do, where over a century of cultural fermentation may well be sterilized by a few dozen landlords in a handful of years, it's worth remembering that living communities must be the subject, as well as the object, of history. I guess in practice, this means understanding how a place feeds itself and allowing your soul to go on a diet. But the journalist who touted Glasgow's Ellis Island was invoking the zeitgeist. Migration and food both still play an outsized role in the way people view Govan Hill, and they've certainly influenced the course of its development since the mid-19th century. Govan Hill was founded as a company village for workers at the now long-gone collieries and coal-bearing wagon paths extending from Allison Street all the way to the River Clyde. The coal mines provided fuel for the iron foundries a mile up Cathcart Road at the Govan Ironworks, or Dixon's Blazes, as it was known by the workers producing the iron and steel, so named for the family who owned the entire area. Many of the workers who came to Govan Hill in the middle of the 19th century were Highlanders facing clearance in their hometowns and villages. Local lairds uprooted and even destroyed rural villages, driving tenant farmers off the land, or clearing it, to make way for more profitable sheep grazing. This forced the dispossessed workers to seek new lives in the slums of industrial centers like Glasgow, by then boasting the worst and most overcrowded living conditions in Europe. Many others were Irish migrants escaping the famine of 1848, when Irish potato crops suffered a blight that could have left enough for the sharecroppers to eat, but not enough to provide the landlords a surplus. The landlords, of course, took what was left of the crop and allowed the sharecroppers to starve, even setting fire to their houses and driving them off the land when they failed to make payment. Ireland's population dropped from 8 million to just over 4 million, a drop from which it is yet to recover, with millions dying and many emigrating to the United States, or places like Govan Hill. By the late 1870s, the village had grown into a town. In 1891, it was incorporated into the city of Glasgow. The tenements for which the neighborhood is known were built between this time and the 1910s. These tenements housed an increasing number of skilled and semi-skilled workers from the Highlands, from Ireland, and from the 1920s it received a wave of migrants from Italy and Jews from Eastern Europe. Victoria Road swelled with shops and amusements for those with disposable incomes, often operated by these new arrivals who brought with them espresso, gelato, fried fish and potatoes, another now familiar fare. From the 1950s, Glasgow Corporation undertook a policy of slum clearance and urban overspill, raising old tenements to the ground and separating generations-old communities out into isolated housing schemes on the outskirts of the city. There were few jobs, shops, or amusements, if any, and transport back to the city was infrequent, expensive, and time-consuming. Govan Hill managed to avoid this disaster of bureaucratic city planning. Residents later formed a housing association that took administrative control of the social housing in the area and used compulsory purchase orders to seize derelict buildings from rogue landlords. 
In the 1960s, Govan Hill became home to many Pakistani people arriving in Britain, with Allison Street still serving as a strip of Asian groceries, restaurants, and takeaways. Cathcart Road to the east is home to several tailors and clothing outlets catering to the Pakistani community. In the last 20 years, the neighborhood welcomed migrants from Eastern Europe, including Glasgow's highest concentration of Romani people. Again, the number of Romanian groceries along Allison Street and the side streets adjacent, as well as the copious shells of sunflower seeds peppering the pavement, stand as a testament to the settlement of this community in Govan Hill. With wages across Britain and the rest of the West stagnating since the early 1980s, while the cost of housing, food, and energy has risen even above the level of inflation, domestic migration within Britain also changed the demographic composition of Govan Hill. Where Glasgow's West End once housed people on low incomes, students, and artists, the gentrification of those neighborhoods and their rising rents pushed people south to areas like Shawlands, Mount Florida, Cathcart, and Govan Hill. Edinburgh also witnessed the highest rent increases in Scotland over the last 10 years, with average rents peaking well above £1,000 per month, long before Glasgow recently crossed that milestone. With rents nationwide shooting up by over 33% in the last decade, people from across Scotland come to the south side because of its relative affordability, while visitors come to eat and drink. Glasgow is an attractive prospect for young people in other parts of Britain who can't afford to stay where they are. Cities like London, Bristol, and Manchester, where the gap between the rate of pay and the cost of living continues to grow into a yawning chasm. And in Ireland, where rents in cities like Dublin are amongst the highest of anywhere in Europe, young people have viewed Glasgow as a good option for living in a reasonably sized English-speaking city with opportunities for a decent work-life balance. But the downward pressure on living standards in the rest of the UK and Ireland are taking their toll on Glasgow too, and especially on already underserved areas like Govan Hill. So, with this influx of mostly young and often downwardly mobile people who can't afford to buy their own homes or stay in the towns and cities where they come from, the businesses that cater to them, cafes, brunch restaurants, bars and groceries, soon followed. Some people call this process gentrification, and sometimes they're correct. Though we need to be clear and distinguish between a neighborhood simply changing, which is inevitable, from a neighborhood being gentrified, which is not. People move into a neighborhood from other places, often out of pure necessity, and the neighborhood accommodates them without displacing anyone. A variety of communities have settled in Govan Hill over decades, and the area is now home to all of them. The migratory patchwork gives Govan Hill its distinctive character. Gentrification, on the other hand, is the process by which property developers, lettings and estate agents, landlords and investors, transform poor and working-class neighborhoods into uniformly bourgeois sites of upmarket businesses and quote-unquote desirable properties by displacing the often well-established and close-knit groups of people who live there. You don't have to destroy a community to make their neighborhood nicer. Indeed, not everything that's expensive is good. But the agents of gentrification are parasitical. Poor and working-class neighborhoods are profitable because they're cheap and can be made expensive. Clearing unwanted people out of these areas earmarked for development is a key step in the process. You can't gentrify a desolated industrial district where no one lives because no one actually wants to live there. In fact, even not-for-profit public development projects aimed at underserved neighborhoods can be grist to the gentrifier's mill. 
Take Govan Hill Baths on Calder Street, for example. The building sat derelict for decades before a dedicated and quite radical local campaign fought and won action from the council. The Govan Hill Baths, now under reconstruction and opening to the public soon, will unquestionably benefit the residents of Govan Hill. That is, if they can still afford to live here when the baths built for them likely increase the property value in the area. It would be absurd to describe the Govan Hill Community Baths Trust as gentrifiers, as it would be to describe the plucky fight for a public pool in an underserved community as gentrification. But even these laudable community victories can be exploited by landlords and property developers as public subsidies that raise the value of their investment and ultimately cater only to the rich, a kind of fattening for the slaughter. Govan Hill is undoubtedly being subjected to gentrification. The Scottish government's announcement of a rent freeze and eviction moratorium up to March 2023 notwithstanding, rents in the area have risen over 15% in a year, while evictions spiked. Looking at the longer term, rents in Glasgow have soared by nearly 64% in the last decade. Meanwhile, Scotland's child poverty rate is at its highest here in the heart of the First Minister's constituency, at a shocking 69%, nearly three times the national average. Unaffordable accommodation is a big part of that. The average rent for a two-bed flat in the G42 postcode is now over £800 a month. A person splitting this rent with a partner or flatmate would need to be taking home at least £19,200 a year after tax and deductions to keep their rent at a safe quarter of their earnings. That's more than I earn as a Band 3 NHS worker. With property prices spiraling, Many flats and houses in Govan Hill have moved out of owner-occupation to join the buy-to-let profit bonanza, making homeownership impossible for many people who only a few years ago would have been able to buy. Every tenement flat that enters the private rental market puts upward pressure on rents and house prices as landlords consolidate their grip on already limited housing. Meanwhile, the Scottish government fails to build more social housing, with existing stock privatized and allocated to the property management corporation, the Wheatley Group, through their subsidiary, Glasgow Housing Association. But even this dwindling number of social tenants are now facing rising rents to ensure that Wheatley turns an ever higher profit. This lack of downward pressure on prices, combined with ever more tenants having no option but the private rental sector, is pushing up rents on remaining properties to completely unaffordable levels for people in Govan Hill. Since establishment media talks about this infrequently and in limited terms, it's unsurprising that people will instead blame migrant residents themselves for the poor condition of the neighborhood, while in the same breath point to new shops in the area as harbingers of gentrification, often attributing the rising cost of housing to these businesses. A certain reactionary strain of anti-gentrification sentiment will also blame the people they think shop and work there, the old avocado-on-toast straw man. Take Locavore on Victoria Road as an example. With their faux-leftist branding, an upraised fist full of leaves under the words, Take Shard, Locavore is one of many community interest operations, hawking expensive organic food and a narrative about themselves as an alternative to capitalism, while at the same time, you know, just basically doing capitalism. Locavore employs mostly young university graduates who, in any previous period since the Second World War, would have found jobs that didn't involve sweeping, mopping, and stacking shelves. While this cohort is obviously privileged compared to the people here facing serious deprivation, that argument totally ignores the true balance of power, 
and is unsurprisingly broadcast loudest from the last upwardly mobile generation, who are themselves more likely to be landlords. Blaming young people for gentrification falsely assumes that they're in these jobs, and even in this city, because they simply chose not to stay where they were. Really, though, dramatic changes within the economy over decades have sent millions of people across the country, and even across continents, in search of a place like Govan Hill. Somewhere to live, somewhere to work, somewhere to have a social life and a family. It's debatable whether a company like Locavore is a symptom or an agent of gentrification. In one respect, they attract and rely on consumers who are able, or at least willing, to shell out on premium groceries, and this is unlikely to be Govan Hill's current demographic majority. On the other hand, they're not a private equity firm with thousands of rental units in their portfolio. They rent like the rest of us. If Locavore does indeed drive up property prices, then eventually they'll gentrify themselves out of a piece of prime real estate. Govan Hill's problem is not the number of brunch spots in one square block, but the class cleansing of urban areas happening across wealthy Western countries. If you can afford your groceries, you probably don't care what the yuppies are up to. The Govan Hill Community Baths Trust seemed to understand the stakes here, opening the People's Pantry in 2020, where membership is a few pounds a week and gets you a basket of groceries worth the cost of a single locavore chicken. Of course, the waiting list to join is currently around one year. But the question of whether shops like Locavore contribute to gentrification, or whether charities like the People's Pantry can alleviate it, misses the point, I think. It ignores the everyday volatility of life under capitalism for people who are not its subjects, but its objects. The market's shifting winds that set people in motion to and from places like Govan Hill also wear away the living standards of longtime residents and recent arrivals alike, which has led to the current upsurge in industrial actions. Workers from the railway, the post office, city council workers, including the guys picking up the rubbish, and perhaps soon NHS Scotland, are all going on strike to fight for pay that actually meets the cost of living. Hell, even locavore workers are unionizing. At the same time, tenants' unions like Living Rent are campaigning and door-knocking to build tenant power street by street. There's no doubt that had Living Rent and others not piled pressure on the Scottish government to take action on tenant protection since 2014, the recent rent freeze and eviction moratorium would have been unthinkable. And it's no coincidence that at every picket, from the cleansing workers at Polmody Recycling Center to the posties at the depot on Victoria Road, you'll see Living Rent members flying the green banner in solidarity with the strikes. Being crushed by soaring rents is substantially the same problem as being crushed by low pay. Tenants and workers, old townies and blow-ins, employed in a traditional blue-collar industry or flogging organic vegetables, or not employed at all, the thing we have in common is the drive to live well and not alone, balanced against the rising cost of food, fuel, and shelter. Some move on, many more arrive. And as we make the place ours, calling dibs in whatever language, dressing our nests and stoking our fires, investors and developers speculate on the very qualities that make this neighborhood home. While the SNP and the Scottish Greens make mealy-mouthed promises of rent controls in 2025, landlords prepare by jacking up rents. If the current rent freeze ends in March next year as planned, before these rent controls are due to take effect, the baying dogs of private property will pounce. It's hard to imagine where there is left to go.
As tenants as much as workers, the only way to even stand still is to fight together. Standing at the top of Queen's Park, looking north into the city, over the grid system of tenements and potholes, cycle lanes and broken street lamps, a distant building reads in bold type, People Make Glasgow. It's a funny one, because the phrase is true in a shallow sense. But what do these platitudes really tell us? People also make satellites and rocket ships and morning rolls and tenants' lager and buildings and books and statues and signposts and iPhones and guitars and medicine and freighters and lorries and laser-guided missiles and prosthetic limbs and Kalashnikovs and Bentleys and Chow Mein and superyachts and Amazon fulfillment centers. People make them all right, but do they get to keep them? The beautiful thing about strikes and struggle is, you know that everyone involved believes they have a future. Why else would they bother? The moment you see someone shrug and say, nah, what difference does it make? You know it's game over. Govan Hill's future is unwritten, and it could go either way. The architecture of a gentrified neighborhood stands eerily as a monument to the place it used to be. Time and place, the more you give of the one, the more you belong to the other. And despite its long history, it's early days for Govan Hill. Every morning when the sun hits my neighbor's windows and covers my living room in a buttery glow, where my cat sits warming himself while the kettle starts to whistle, the landlord, the prime minister, the king, all furthest from my mind. My partner is pregnant with our first child, and I look at the schoolyard out my back window, the sound of the bell and kids arriving, screaming and running, parents at the gate, waving goodbye. I wonder about my son, what part of Govan Hill he'll want to keep, and what part of him belongs to it, how many Romany words he'll learn and maybe teach me, this person who I haven't met yet, but whose life is so intertwined with mine. <laughs>